Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the long-awaited Season 2 of Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. We're excited to announce that in advance of this season, we joined Article 3, a podcasting network designed for podcasts run by experts on topics related to criminal justice. On the first episode of Season 2, we are joined by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg, two of the founders of Article 3. Megan Sachs, PhD, is an associate professor and the criminal justice graduate program director at Fairleigh Dickinson University. She teaches classes on women and crime, serial killers, and crime policy. Her research interests include bail reform, plea bargaining, sentencing policy, and corrections. She has published her work in several journal articles and periodicals, co-authored two books, and contributed to several more. Megan received her PhD and master's from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Prior to her academic career, Megan served as a United States probation officer in the Southern District of New York. She is also the co-creator and co-host of two true crime podcasts, Women in Crime and Direct Appeal. Amy Schlossberg, PhD, is department chair and an associate professor of criminology at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Her primary research focuses on miscarriages of justice, the negative implications of incarceration and issues surrounding reentry, with an emphasis on policy and procedural reform. Her works in this area have been accepted for publication in several academic journals, including the Albany Law Review, Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology, Psychology, Crime and Law, Wrongful Conviction Law Review, and Criminal Justice Policy Review. She is also the co-creator and co-host of two true crime podcasts, Women in Crime and Direct Appeal. We recognize that this podcast may be difficult for some of you. Please remember that you can always turn the episode off and listen later or even listen with a friend. My name is Dr. Alexa Sardina. And I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. Thank you for joining us for season two of Beyond Fear. everyone, and welcome to Season 2 of Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. We're so excited about this season. We'll be covering a lot of topics related to sex crimes more in-depth and also featuring interviews with folks directly impacted by these topics. We're also happy to announce that we are a part of Article 3 Productions. And to talk more about that, we're joined today by Megan and Amy of the Women in Crime Podcast. Welcome, Megan and Amy. Thank you, Alexa. Thank you, Alyssa. Hi, ladies. So good to see you. (laughs) Good to see you, too. So I was thinking that maybe today we could talk a little bit about our origin story. So our listeners know um, 
a lot about Alyssa and I at this point and how we came together to create Beyond Fear. But I was thinking that maybe we could talk a bit about how you two came together um, for our listeners who might not be familiar with you. Well, I <laughs> it's a long love story. No, um, I, I began um, my career after I met Alyssa and we got our PhD together. I took a job as the criminology program director at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Um, so building the program from the ground up, which was really cool and really exciting. And it grew quickly. And so two years later, I found myself in a position where I needed, you know, a second hand, a right hand, really. And though I intended to hire someone with like very different research interests and, um, you know, maybe even like an international criminologist, Amy applied and she was just the greatest fit. And so I hired Amy and we began kind of running the program together, I'd say. I, I really couldn't have done it without Um and so Amy and I clicked, I have to say, right, we, we clicked pretty, like, you know, we were friendly. Um, um, so Amy and I were definitely friendly, and um, we loved working together, but we got to be, I'd say, you know, the, the heart, the uh, besties um, through our first podcast, which was Direct Appeal. That's right. Yes. So that was the case of Melanie McGuire. And, you know, Melanie had, had kind of reached out through other sources. And I started working on this, you know, possible tracking of a wrongful conviction. I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I did not understand what I didn't even know what podcasting was. Amy had to yeah. explain it to me. And then <laughs> she was so good because she knew so much. She was like so in the know. I mean, you know, you just had like you were already way into podcasts. Do you, do you realize I was into podcasts because I was in my car about 15 to 20 hours yeah. a week? Yeah, I wasn't in my car nearly <laughs> as much. No, no, but she just knew everything. And, and when I started thinking about like what I wanted to do with Melanie McGuire's story, I just realized I wanted to do a podcast. Well, actually, James told me you should do a podcast. I was like, I can't. But um, <laughs> <laughs> well, and Meg, I remember you talking about this case long before the podcast. I did. I knew the case long before. A lot of students had brought this case to us because it's local. It was mm -hmm. a Jersey case and we teach in Jersey school. Mm -hmm. So it came up over and over. It was always on my radar. But I just knew mm -hmm. that in order to make like a, a, a podcast that would work, um, I would need Amy to do that with me. So I think that was really when our our true love was uh, cemented. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, the real heart. When we started working on direct appeal, I think that was when we really, really um, got very close. And I think that brought us to women in crime. Amy, maybe you want to say a little bit of how, like, you know, women in crime came on the radar. Yeah, sure. If I recall, women in crime started because, well, Megan teaches a course on women in crime. And I think you looked and you were like, how does nobody have that name for a podcast? So, or maybe James, and James is so smart that he was like, oh, no, it was you? Yeah, I know. You always like <laughs> to credit James with all the smart moves. Fine, but it was fine. Me. But James James bought the domain name, and he made sure we nailed it down. Got That's true. Right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay. But women in crime also, I think, happened. Like, I didn't just, like, randomly go, oh, women in crime. Mm -hmm. It was, people mm -hmm. kept writing in after direct appeal. It was crazy. How many people were writing in, like, can you please cover this case? Can you please look at this case? And they were all female-centered, either as victims, offenders, or both, because often they're one and the same, mm. as we say. But um, so I was just like, well, we can't cover every one of these cases like in a serialized way. But we yeah. think I was like, Amy, we can cover them, you know, topically and kind of, you know, 
episodically. So that's kind and, of... And, you know, we always say we would sit there and shoot the shit about these cases anyway. So it's like just pressing record on some right. of our normal conversations, mm-hmm. which I'm sure is similar for you two as well. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Yeah. 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 And, and sort of the idea of for us, I think, came a lot from the topics that we were teaching in our sex crimes courses. So it was sort of a natural fit, especially for season one. The topics kind of follow along in mm-hmm. in that way. I loved your season one. Oh, thank I you. I really loved it. Thank I mean, you. I remember James and I were on a road trip and I was like, let's give a listen. And we were like, we went right <laughs> up till whatever. We binged yeah, it. It's good. It was really, really, really well oh, done. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah. and Meg, I, you know, I one of the reasons that I wanted to do the podcast came from the textbook that we wrote six years ago now. Gosh, it was published six years ago, (laughs) right? Where we were writing about, you know, personal narrative and story Mm. and trying, you know, it was my first sort of foray into thinking about public criminology and, you know, we we learn through story. We don't learn through dry material. So it was really mm-hmm. that book that had me thinking about it. And then, you know, as our listeners know, I came to Alexa and mm-hmm. said, we have to do a podcast on the same day. She was like, no, like, seriously, I was just <laughs> talking to my husband about that last <laughs> night. We have to do this yeah. podcast. So it was- that's serendipity. Yeah, it was meant to be. It was. It was meant to be. Yeah. And now here we are, the four of us, two best friends <laughs> right. join with two best friends to make four. Yeah. Yeah. I love this. Yeah. This is great. It's great. Very cool. Very cool. Oh, I also was thinking, too, that I've been listening to a lot of women in crime lately. And the fact that you both make theory very interesting, criminological theory very interesting for people, I love that. Because I think that's sort of important for the understanding of the why, which people are always, I think, most interested in when we talk about specific cases or different crimes. People really want to know the why. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, you all do that so well. It's something that we try to do in our episodes as well. So we appreciate it. Oh, we love it. Yeah, I hope it comes across because every time you think about theory and the why, it's always so important to highlight that these are not excuses. Right. Or, you know, right. they're just, they. the more we understand, the better we can learn from mistakes, mm-hmm. right? But sometimes mm-hmm. I, you know, sometimes I worry that people listen and think like, you know, oh, you're making excuses because people that don't understand theory, I think would be quick to think that. But mm-hmm. I hope it doesn't ever come off like that. I haven't heard that critique yet. So we should. I haven't either. I'm surprised. I thought that was a criticism <laughs> that we, but maybe because we do, you know, place things in context and we do try to explain like this is certainly not a victim blaming. This is an explanation right. or not a mm-hmm. justification or excuse. We just want to understand this behavior so we can either prevent it, reduce it, you know. Like understanding mm-hmm. it, really understanding the why is really just helps us to prevent crime. So I think that's something we're always careful of, too, specifically when you're talking about sex crimes. You know, you never want to, you know, give that impression. Right. Because it's not it's not an excuse. It's helping us to better understand. I think always, too, with the eye on prevention. Right. If we understand what's happening in you know, like you're saying, in any given context, then we can start sort of working on more effective prevention efforts. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So we also wanted to have you on um, today to sort of talk about Article 3 and what that's all about and um, kind of share for our listeners and help them understand how we connected. Okay. 
Well, Article 3 began as direct appeal, but then we started branching out, um, you know, doing women in crime. And I think our focus, we decided we wanted to be, you know, expert based. Um, You know, we really wanted to, there's some great storytellers in podcasting and there's some great podcasts, but we like the aspect that we're, you know, professionals who are trying to deliver this content in a way that is, you know, it's still, it's, it's, it's meant to be somewhat entertaining, of course, but it's supposed to also be informative and educational and polite and respectful and should have integrity. So, um, you know, we started thinking about us as, you know, a group and Article 3, we decided we couldn't just be direct appeal. We're not just women in crime, but Article 3 came to us initially because it was Amy, James and I. So there's three of us, but it's also mm-hmm. the three um, branches, you know, like the three judicial branches and the, and the powers. Ah. Um, so that's kind of where Article 3 came from. Um, you know, the three, uh, what am I saying? I'm not saying it right. What's it called? The three, I'm not even saying it right, am I? Not judicial branches. What am I? No, it's well, not the judicial, judicial branch, the, the three yeah, branches. They, the, it's the three branches of like the government and the law. <laughs> Here we are. Here we four are. Experts four experts. Four experts. Name. Article three. <laughs> All right. So it has, you know, it was kind of double for us. It was like the three Wait. of us starting this. <laughs> sorry. Do we have an answer? Amy? Wait, sorry. Even better. I went to Google it and I Googled Article Four, which turns out it's not. A- <laughs> Which turns out is not relevant. (laughs) But now Article 3, um, in case you're wondering, the judicial power of the first sentence of Article 3 says the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. Okay, so she said it better than I did. There you go. All right, there it is. Um, That was so it was kind of our ties to, you know, um, the legal world and the criminal justice system, but also us. And then when we heard your podcast, uh, well, Alyssa, actually, you and I had chatted about the podcast and I chatted with Alexa and, you know, just kind of ways Mm -hmm. to get started and some ideas. And then when I heard, when I listened, um, and just I just thought you guys were so professional and you're you are delivering very difficult content, um, you know, and it's something that we think about all the time. But I thought mm-hmm. you also did so in season one again with, you know, objectively, professionally, personally, you know, it, it, it came across as again, this is people want to hear this information, but you're making it um, you're making it OK to listen to it, take it in and. You're respectful about it. So I just think, you know, your professionality matched ours. And I just thought, well, they're doing what we're doing in a different arena with a different specialty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why we thought, you know, it would be a great fit to work together as criminologists mm-hmm. and professionals and people who like and respect each other. And female-led podcasts, I'll just say it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we're excited to be here for sure. So we also, in thinking about this episode and talking with uh, the both of you, thought it would be interesting to do a deep dive or dissect a case that had a lot of themes that were really relevant um, to our uh, to our podcast as well. Um, and I listened to the Ellie Nestler episode and thought that would be a really great one to talk about. So Ellie Nestler was a case that I took the lead on, and it was... It was a difficult one, um, and I'm so interested to hear both of your opinions on this because you're the experts in this area. Um, But Ellie Nessler, once it came to light that her six-year-old son was being molested by a family friend, she took the law into her own hands and during a court proceeding, took out a gun and shot 
the alleged abuser several times, killing him instantly. And now some people said she was a hero because she was being a, quote, mama bear protecting her child. Anyone would do it. Other people said, nope, we have a system for a reason. This is vigilante justice. And no matter how evil, you know, everyone deserves their day in court. And it it turned into quite the media circus with a lot of division on, you know, how to look at this case. So at the conclusion of the trial, Ellie was found sane at the time of the killing of Daniel Mm. Driver, her son's abuser. She was sentenced to 10 years, but because of jury misconduct allegations and some other issues at trial, she ended up only serving three of those years. Unfortunately for the whole family, though, nobody wins here. Yeah. Because, you know, Ellie ended up, you know, passing away... um, from breast cancer? Yeah, I think it was yep. breast cancer. Yeah, so so Ellie was able to, you know, she was released from prison, but about two years after her release, she died from breast cancer. And the most unfortunate, or one of the most unfortunate parts of this story is her son ended up having a very difficult time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wound up really uh, in the criminal justice system, incarcerated frequently. You know, this mm-hmm. is one of those cases where it's it, there was a ripple effect of her actions yeah. and while we might understand it and 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 let me point out maybe you you know those of us who are mothers i i'm not i might under, you know have a different perspective but i do understand that that you know instinctual um response to it but the unfortunately the ripple effect was so probably much worse um you know we were speculating on it though but if i had to speculate um and I, I, if I, he had received the proper treatment and his mother was in his life and was a stable force i have to imagine that things would have worked out better well yeah and i think too the the sort of more extensive harm that was done if, if you want to sort of frame it that way was like the tragedy of the, her son yeah. you know going through all of this stuff and i think ended up being charged and convicted of first degree murder. So very serious charges, wasn't able to ever have really significant time with his family again. I am assuming he's still incarcerated. So it's really that, you know, trauma, like you were saying, that ripple effect, it's that ripple effect of trauma as well, you know, starting with Ellie. There's also what I thought was, there was no chance for restoration for him. He didn't right. have any chance to ever confront his, you know, abuser to work through that to heal himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, so it reminds me of some work. So, you know, we talk about it in season one of our podcast, but so Alexa does work in the prison system with people who are serving life um, after homicide. And um, I was, fortunate enough to get to go with her on one of these occasions um, for the group that she was running. And the topic of the the group was uh, self-forgiveness. And at the end of the session, I don't don't know if you were standing with me or not, Lex, um, but a man came up to me and he said, it is not lost on me that you have found forgiveness for the man who raped you, but I'm serving life in prison because I took the life of the man who raped my daughter. Mm, and wow. it wasn't until this moment that I realized that I took away her closure. I took yeah. away her ability to get restoration. And this is exactly what Ellie Nessler did. Right. Right. She took away his ability. Yeah. 
to find healing. His, yeah. And we yeah. know now that punishment is like punishment. You know, there's a, a lot. Punishment doesn't always help victims. You know that. We know that. Like right. being right. tough, yeah. being tough in the name of crime, that doesn't help people heal. So, yeah, yeah I don't think I, sh- I certainly don't think she meant to do that. I think it was just, you know, instinctual mom. Um, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. yeah, like the consequences, I think, were just so severe and didn't allow him any chance for real healing. Yeah. But I think it also comes to the way that we view people who commit sex crimes. Like if it was any other kind of crime, I don't know that the instinctual thing would have been to go murder this guy. I think that's probably true. Yeah. Or that public support would have been sort of on her side like it was, at least initially it was. I think if it had been you know. um, murder, this support would have been the same. But I don't think there's another mm-hmm. crime outside of homicide and a, a sex yeah. crime that would have elicited that type of support for her mm-hmm. um, actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and some of the the things that she said, like this, you know, this guy has molested hundreds of children. Right. right. It just speaks to the myths that we hear so often in our work. Right, Lex? It's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm the assumptions that that people make and and you know when you think about myths as well i think one thing that this case really highlights too is the abuse that sexual abuse typically happens between persons that know each other right this isn't perpetrated by the stranger in the dark alley um this kid was you know harmed by somebody the family trusted and so i think that that sense of betrayal was also there for her like i trusted this person and put you know my child almost like in harm's way i'm sure is part of the the feeling that she had i'm not trying to speak for her but i would mm -hmm. think that that's what it was well yeah and she said you know she didn't want her son to go to the sleepaway camp because she was a very Mm -hmm. overprotective mother because she also was victimized when she was younger as well so i think the fact that like her instinct told her not to let him go and then the family friend made her feel comfortable so as you mentioned it was someone she trusted so she thought she was adding a layer of protection when, in fact, she was like, you know, giving her son to, you know, the person who was going to harm him. Ugh, mm. And that is a worse betrayal. I mean, I can't yeah. I can't speak for everyone, but someone, you know, you know, violating your trust versus someone you don't know. There's no mm-hmm. relationship between someone you don't know. There's no assumption of any trust or, or anything like that. So, yeah, I think that does make it like, you know, sort of double the the, the guilt yeah. and pain and oh terrible terrible case yeah and Liz, i don't know if you thought of about this at all when you were listening but i kind of thought how much grooming was going on between you know mm-hmm. um ellie the son by what's his name dan daniel, daniel. driver daniel mm-hmm. yeah so how much did he really over time prior to this sleepaway camp you know sort of gain her trust and groom her because we often see that that Uh, parents as well as the children are sort of part of the grooming process right Right. this trust doesn't happen overnight right Uh, we were just talking about this last night we had um uh uh, an ama where we invite our patrons in yeah and we were talking about the um documentary abducted in plain sight have you guys seen that one oh yes but it's it reminded me the same thing because the offender was grooming the parents both of them and the child the entire Mm -hmm. time and so Grooming, you know, I think historically, even for people who now come to understand it, has always been applied to just, you know, the, the primary 
um, victim, but this phenomenon extends to, you know, can extend to an entire family. Absolutely. Well, in many ways it has to, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. To be able to, to gain the trust, to be alone with the child mm-hmm. requires the grooming of the whole family, which mm-hmm. is why, I mean, so we know that roughly 80%, if not more of sex crimes are committed by somebody that we know. Um, and it is why that grooming is so much more insidious because it's the whole family. It reminded me of yeah. the Michael Jackson case too, just because I remember Absolutely. a lot of the mothers uh, when I watched the documentary with Wade Robson um, and mm-hmm. I know the, the other victim, I, I, his name is just escaping me right now. But when they talked about like how their moms and several moms did not think it, it was like, right. They were like, no, 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 you can't sleep over at a grown man's house or you can't. But like right. they talked about the process by which it became normalized and, oh, okay, well, I guess it's, you know, they over time you know, gave, mm-hmm. uh, saw, saw it as something that wasn't so bad. So, you know, that, that popped into mm-hmm. my head as well. Mm-hmm. Or wasn't dangerous. Right. You know, right. which is part of it too. Right. It reminds me of the um, institutional sexual abuse yeah. stuff with the Boy Scouts and USA Gymnastics and the Catholic Church and any faith institution where, there are people in positions of power who have, you know, time and space and opportunity with young people uh, where the grooming happens because of the position of power. Yeah. Mm. And again, yeah. it's just so much more insidious because it is somebody that we trust. Yeah. Right. Who do you trust more than your priest or yeah. your doctor? Yeah. No. Right. No. One part for me that really just resonated when I was just listening to this, the facts of the case was how terrified Willie was before testifying. And, you know, just hearing that, he, you know, he was kind of like sick walking into this um, pretrial hearing, like physically sick. And all of that really kind of hit me hard because I could identify with that feeling a lot of of being the person that a lot of the weight is placed on right to these these two young boys I think testified um and just that horrible feeling um that I imagine he felt having to do that and how you know oftentimes still that is overlooked by the criminal justice process right that this is incredibly um challenging and no matter what happens, it, there's just a very much a lack of victim centeredness mm-hmm. um, or like a space for humanity for everyone involved. Right. It's just a vi- it's a process and it's doesn't allow much room for, you know, that healing space or that space to take responsibility and accountability. It's just not baked in, if you will. Right. Well, well, luckily and. I think you would know better. I don't follow the laws much, but I do know that the laws have changed quite a bit since this case as far as, mm-hmm. you know, they, at the time they requested to have, um, what's the name? Well, they requested to have Willie testify via closed circuit TV and it was rejected. Mm-hmm. But I think today there's a lot more um, consideration given to mm-hmm. children victims. I don't know. Is that mm-hmm. true? I think so. Yeah, for children. But I think that, even for adult survivors testifying, I, I don't think it's 
easy either. And, you know, it's also, you know, that there's you talked about the sort of shame and embarrassment that he felt um, and the suicidality and sort of his change from, you know, Willie previous to this happened to Willie after. I think that that happens to most folks and not I'm sure it's more intense for children. Um, of course, but I think that that a lot of people who are survivors of sexual harm go through that change list. I think we've talked about this on our, you know, on the show quite a bit that who you were before and who you are after are just not the same person. There's, yeah, absolutely. There's a quote, I don't remember who it's by, but it's from a, a former student of mine um, shared this quote with me when she shared about her own experience of rape. Uh, and it's, it was basically what you said, like there's the before rape and there's a, the after rape. And in many ways they are forever disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is 100% true. Like it, it fundamentally changes you, who you are. Um, and as I was listening to all of you, I don't know, you know, for those of you who are listening to the podcast and this might end up being cut, but if not, like you saw me kind of look down, I was here and then I was here because the feeling that I had in my body Thinking about sitting in a courtroom and hearing about and having to answer questions about the most awful thing that has ever happened to me and to have to do it in intimate detail, I cannot even fathom. And I just felt this whole rush in my whole body. Like I do a lot of work with my therapist around like, okay, where do you feel that? (laughs) So doing that body inventory, where do I feel that? Everywhere. I feel it everywhere. I can't even imagine. And it's why so many people don't go to the police. Yeah. But it's because the system is so, so the, the focus is so much on punishment and just not even nearly balanced enough about restoring people. And I don't mean restoring, like you said, you're not going to be the exact same person you were, but I just meant Mm. the focus is always on like, we're doing our job if we punish them and that's going to make everything better, but it doesn't. It doesn't make you better. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help you when you have to testify. It doesn't help with all those feelings. Like that's just the part that's like lost with how we deal with a Mm. lot of crimes, I think now. I also yeah. think it gets it gets a little tricky because you have to balance the rights of the accused with the rights totally. of the victim. And as I pointed out in the podcast, it's I think it's unfair to have a child testify in front of, you know, the person that harmed them. And I think it might be really unfair to have any survivor, as you pointed out. I'm fortunate enough to have never been in that situation. So it's not as real for me, but I could imagine that, uh, you know, that would be the hardest thing. But you have to remember that the Sixth Amendment guarantees the right to cross-examine your accuser. So, you know, these are the issues we always have to grapple with is, you know, you're always trying to balance these things. And Mm -hmm. I think all of us here are the type of people who we want people to have their rights, but we also are angry at people that violate other people and we want to support victims. So it's really difficult to find that balance. You know, it makes me think about, I fully respect and understand why we have the laws that we have, but I think in many ways it thwarts our ability to, um, you know, as Alexa was saying, 
to have real accountability, to have real responsibility. And I think about, you know, some of the individuals with whom we have worked, Lex, who mm. want to be accountable. Yeah. You know, I think about the Brock Turner case mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. you know, he is on the record saying, I want to apologize to Chanel Miller. I want to I want to take responsibility and tell her how sorry I am. And his attorney said, you will say nothing. Right. Right. Because it can and will be used against, against you. you in court. So you will say nothing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or cases, uh, you know, uh, date rape on, on college campuses where mm-hmm. so much of the time this is happening between young people who really don't understand the impact of the harm they're causing because yeah. as a society, we're not preparing young people not at all for sex. And then no, when no. they cause harm, we label them a rapist when really, if we just had a conversation, yeah. right, the behavior would never happen again. It might have prevented yeah. instead of trying to punish yeah. it after. Could, yeah. but, right. And prevention's more meaningful in many ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, yes, the, you know, the rights of the accused are important, but maybe instead of accusing people. Right. We just had some really difficult conversations with them. And that's not to say that there isn't a place for punishment, punishment or the legal system. Right. Right. Um, But it's not at least with sex crimes. I mean, this is kind of all we focus on. So I don't know about other forms of harm, but at least for sex crimes, it is not working. Really, what we have here is like Ellie, who is a survivor and then becomes a perpetrator. And then we have Willie, who's a survivor and ends up perpetrating a great harm. How likely is it that um, the person that harmed Willie was also uh, is also a survivor? So you have this just overlap, incredible overlap. And if we sort of started addressing this in a more preventative way, in a more real way, right, instead of out this, using the system to try and address the impact of sexual harm, because you can't use the, the criminal legal system to do that. If we started framing it that way, I think we would start seeing less of these ripple effects, yeah. right? And you know, it's just this case just stood out as such an example of so many of the, the things that we we talk about on the podcast and that I think are that happen a lot. It's not uncommon mm-hmm. um, to see that. Yeah. Long term consequences. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, it's kind of that just that cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. Right. It's mm-hmm. so easy to separate the us and them. Mm-hmm. But that binary doesn't really exist. Right. right? The overwhelming majority of people who are incarcerated in our system Mm -hmm. right now are trauma survivors Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they have the highest rates of trauma than anybody else. And that I would say that is uh, more so for women who are incarcerated. Would you agree? For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just anecdotally with the work I've done um, with people incarcerated, I don't know that I've ever met anyone who's incarcerated that has not been the victim of trauma. Oh, I don't either. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know that, you know, um, and obviously there's trauma in many different forms, you know, um, whether you're the direct victim, indirect victim, whatever it may be. But yeah, I think that's a great point. It's just that cycle, 
you know, that's why we always say victim, offender, one in the same, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, know, you just said that. I was trying to think about everyone that we've ever worked with. I can only think yeah. of two people out of all the people that I've met in prison that I know didn't have or wouldn't identify with having traumatic childhoods. Out of or so they, yeah. or so they say. That's why I yeah. said, right. or, or right. maybe they think, or yeah, okay, fine, fair mm-hmm. enough. Yeah, yeah. I think it's fair to yeah. say that most people um, do have serious trauma. But do them. you know? Keep in mind, like trauma could also be. You know, traumatized by living in impoverished conditions mm-hmm. and being harassed yes. by the police. And, you know, like it doesn't have to be sexual no, trauma no, no. or, you know, but yeah, I think, yeah, it's really, you know, that's why sometimes people are quick to say that I'm too soft on offenders. It's like, well, get to know someone who's incarcerated and you yes. would you would be too because they're they themselves are victims as well. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. again, it, it goes back to that balance. Thank it's goodness I so you have me to balance you out and I'm not too yeah, soft that's on true. offenders, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. People Thank God for Amy that. For like the, like Amy's going to go with the lighter out. I'm like, no, I, I need a little longer in prison. I need a little more, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey. I just I know that nobody wakes up one day and says, gee, I think I'm going to go rape somebody today. Right? Or I'm going to go murder somebody today. It there's stuff. There are yeah. factors that weigh into that. You know, I, I often talk about this man that I worked closely with who served twenty years in prison for rape. And um you know, when you get to know him and you get to know his story, what you come to find is that his first memory of life is his father taking all of the Christmas presents and burning them in the fire, in the fireplace. And every memory he has after that is of violence. And so what he learned was that you get things through violence. So no wonder he wanted something and he took it through violence. Right. Right. And so when you like it, it again, it's not an excuse. It's not a justification. It's but it helps you understand the why. Right. And right. when you understand the why you can do something. you can prevent it. Yeah. You can do something right. about it. Yeah. I, I totally... And you can have more empathy, you know, like you can you can just see that the humanity in people mm-hmm. like you were saying, Liz, like people, the vast majority of people would never wake up one day and decide. Right. I really want to to hurt somebody. I want to, you know, just do some horrific crime against another person. That's just not how it works. Yeah. I would imagine, Megan, I know you know more about, you know, psychopathy. There are some people who wake up and say, I just want to kill someone today, correct? It's not, Mm -hmm. it's a small percentage, but there are some people, Right. right? Okay. Alyssa said nobody. I noticed you said nobody does, and I thought that's not true. But Alexa said the vast majority. The vast of majority, and of that was it's... the right. And then I went, "Yep, okay. that's exactly correct." There are, there's, of course, a very, very rare and small percentage of people sure. who do wake up, but the vast majority, as Alexa said, do not. To be more more specific, when it comes to sexual violence, it's approximately three percent, right, of people who sexually harm who are the person in the alleyway, right? The, it, it, right? the, the, the stranger, the sadist. It's about th- 3% or less of yeah. people who sexually harm would fit that. And yet, if you, yeah, if you look at like the media, that's the one we all fear, right? That's, that's what they show, yeah, right? Yeah. So I've worked with over 500 men who have sexually harmed. Mm-hmm. I have been afraid of one of them. Yeah. Mm. Two of them. Okay. Okay. more recent. 
There's one other one. There's one other one. Um, So there are two in my entire career. And that's 500. Look at those numbers. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That speaks well. That speaks volumes, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, not only is that what the media shows us, but that's sort of what our sex crimes policies are based on. I mean, if you look at what we have in place, it is not based on the most common context or situation in which sexual harm occurs. It is based on these very rare instances um, of horrific crimes, you know, against children that involve a stranger. And just that's what most people have in mind when they talk about protecting a child from um, being sexually harmed. The conversation is usually not about the neighbor it's about you know this stranger that's going to come you know during the night Mm -hmm. or during the day when no one's paying attention and kidnap their child and harm them so you're talking megan's law (laughs) megan you talk about that one a lot in your policy i do actually i spend two classes like two full classes addressing the efficacy or lack thereof of current sex offender policies i talk about the history the origins talk about Mm -hmm. the fact that most policy is passed as a knee-jerk reaction to a horrific Mm -hmm. event and as alexis said horrific but it's always it's unplanned change which does not work And so while Mm -hmm. everyone likes it, okay, we're going to get harsher, really harsh on these types of crimes again, who cares if they don't work? You know what I mean? If they're not protecting people, then, Mm -hmm. and and if they're not reducing, you know, sexual harm, then what is the Mm -hmm. point? You know, policy just Uh for the sake of policy is just bad. Right. Yeah, they feel powerless and they feel like they need to make an example. They need to, Mm. you know... Throw what's that word called when you like throw the book at yeah throw the <laughs> yes. book at them exactly like just yeah they feel mm-hmm. like you know if you know if we don't do something then we're gonna look soft on crime so let's all get together and just like mm-hmm. over punish everyone and obviously the unintended consequences of those types of policies are much you know if you're looking at cost and benefit I mean you've hurt a lot more people than you've helped yeah. absolutely well and to be since we like specifics. Meg, you and I wrote a piece 10 years ago where we looked at mm-hmm. the implementation of Megan's Law over a 30-year period, yep. right? So Megan's Law was implemented in the United States federally in 1996. Mm-hmm. Oh, I feel old. Um, yeah, we're, we're not we have so young anymore. Uh, <laughs> and so we looked at rates of uh, forcible rape from the 1970s through 2012. 12, I think. Yeah, I think it was about that. That was, the, that was when the article was published. published yeah. So it was before that. But so about a 30 year period. And we looked at when Megan's law was implemented and we found zero impact. Right. And then, Alyssa, we also did another article where we looked at theory and, you know, we've talked about theory, about general strain theory, which is Amy's favorite theory, just so you guys know, if you listen to her, uh, our podcast, (laughs) she'll go, Megan, I know I always go to general strain theory. Yes. And, you know, it could explain, it could explain everything. Because it works. It explains everything. Thank you, Amy. (laughs) But we look at general strain theory or, you know, um, uh, offenders who are faced with, you know, significant stress or stressors and they Mm -hmm. don't have the proper coping mechanism. Mechanisms. Didn't our own work show that, you know, stressing an already stressed population or, you know, right. causing mm-hmm. more strain to sex offenders is also, and I don't say sex offenders, I know we should be more specific about that, but just in looking at it generally, it, you're, you're probably going to cause more harm. 
you know, because mm-hmm. they, 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 totally. it's not going to be sexual harm. It's going to yes. be other yes. form, mm-hmm. other crimes. Yes. Which is like another misconception that it's always sexual reoffending. But I think it right. would show right. like recidivating in, in different ways just because mm-hmm. the coping skills uh, with all that stress, you know, it's not it's just not mm-hmm. the best policy if you want to reduce right. sexual harm. Right. Well, and what we know is that the vast majority of people who sexually harm children do so because they cannot cope with life stressors. Right. 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 Right? And so if we're dealing with people who cannot cope with life stressors, perhaps teaching them how to cope with life stressors is the way to stop offending. Not... Seems obvious. Right? obvious. Not to put additional stressors. I think that right. seems obvious. I yeah. mean, I really hope, I really, really hope at some point in our lifetimes here that we see a significant yeah. move towards meaningful sex offender policy because I just haven't seen it in my career and my tenure here yet. And I don't see the shift yet. And I do see the shift. You know, I don't, I'm not like a total pessimist. I see sh- shifts in other areas um, where, you know, drug policies aren't working. So let's move towards rehabilitation right. or decriminalization. But I just haven't seen any movement. I know it's because this is, you know, the the category of offenders that the public likes the least. And so moving away from these harsh policies is going to be harder. But I, ho- I hope I see a change yeah. in, in certainly in uh, probably not in my career, but in my lifetime. Because yeah. as Alyssa pointed out, I'm, we're getting older. So <laughs> <laughs> planning retirement already. <laughs> I wish. True story. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the the most important thing for me yes. uh, that sort of speaks to what we're doing the whole second season of our podcast is the importance of humanizing people. Yeah. And it's really easy to hate Daniel Driver, and it's really easy to hate Ellie Nessler. But really, when it comes down to it, if we just humanize them a little bit, and I know I'm going to get shit for that, but people are people. Yes, that's okay. And that's that's the message that I want this second season to drive home. And we're dealing with some pretty intense and difficult topics. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, but people are just people. And can I tell you that um, I've been trying to get this master's program implemented that um, a collaboration between the Department of Corrections and FDU and basically it would be a model that I think everyone should do. Any student who wants to get a degree in anything criminal justice or criminology related or law related must take at least one inside out class. Yeah. Because I'm convinced, mm. I mean, I think everyone in the world should, but let's start yeah. small here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know, as everyone here knows, if you sit down face to face with somebody that you had this preconceived idea of, yeah. you know, you realize like you're both just trying to live, you know, you both watch the same reality TV, you both have mm-hmm. an aunt you love and you both like pizza, you know, it's like you just find common ground and it yeah. humanizes and you realize people are just people. Uh, well said, yeah. ladies. Well said. Um, just uh, it was great chatting with you guys about Ellie Nessler, and uh, yeah. love the collaboration, Alexa. I've had you on a show before, which I've discussed. Yes. Um, when I covered <laughs> Ghislaine Maxwell, um, I had Alexa on as our expert, and we really had an interesting conversation, kind of dissecting Ghislaine, which was something I was 
like I just couldn't wait to do. Um, and there was what a case. It was such a case, and I mean, you know, mm-hmm. still ongoing. Um, still right. ongoing. Right. So, yeah. You know, having Alexa on was wonderful. It was an awesome episode. It really was. Yeah, it was cool. I loved collaborating, cool. and now that we're part of a network, um, we really look yeah. forward to having you both on the show again. We're totally. we're tossing around a couple of ideas uh, right now, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't want to spoil it for the audience yet, and we. You know, we're somehow going to have to pick and commit to one or two. Um, But certainly on uh, Women in Crime, you will be hearing from Alexa and Alyssa in a future episode and likely more than one, which we cannot wait for. Yeah. And we look forward to having you back on Beyond Fear. For sure. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you both. Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast, a part of Article 3 Podcasting Network. We would like to extend a special thanks to Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg for speaking with us today. Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast is written and hosted by Alexis Sardina and Alyssa Ackerman. All episodes are produced and edited by Christopher Antico. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and answer any questions that you might have about the topics we've covered or questions about us. You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast.